Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Hello and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the podcast where every week we have on one of our favorite comedians to talk about one of their favorite things and we trace its history to find out exactly where it all went off the rails. I'm joined as always by my co-host Andrew Nadeau. Andrew, how you doing buddy? I'm doing great. This was so much fun. We had Sydney Battle on today. So good. She's, She's so, so good. good. You can follow her on Twitter at Sydney Battle and Instagram at Sid Battle and you should absolutely go do both. Uh, her videos are so, so funny. I just absolutely love her work. After watching a number of them, I wrote her immediately and asked her to do this, and I'm so thankful she said yes. She came on to talk about childhood celebrity crushes and where they went wrong in adulthood, which uh, also led us to Marlon Brando and so many films and so many disasters. It was absolutely insane. It's so much fun, but hey, don't take our word for it. Actually, take our word for it. You're about to hear us talk for like an hour. I mean, please, yeah, keep listening. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) so yeah, take our word for it. You have to so that we can get those sweet, sweet clicks. Uh, Let's go. Let's do it. Sydney Battle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I've been a fan of yours for since I first saw your, I think it was your cat call ASMR <laughs> uh, was the one that I saw first, which was, I love it because it, it really was effective as actual ASMR. And then you hear it and, and what it's actually saying. And it's horrifying, but so good. I really strive to make art that confuses people emotionally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was it. Right on the money. Your videos have been fantastic. I know you did one recently on the the very New York person uh, and the uh, oh god the, I don't want to get well- in trouble though so I will say the the gentrifier who thinks they're a very New York person yes that's the one. <laughs> people got really mad last time because overheard labeled the video as like that New York girl or something or they didn't even say that they were just like this is a New Yorker and people are like excuse me right. that is not how I behave ma'am right <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn I'd beat up this person if I it's like, yes, okay, that's the point. That's the point of the video. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on your side. I am not being nice about this human being. Right. <laughs> yeah, but people just like to vent. So 
whatever. But yeah. please don't get me in trouble. No, that that was it was fantastic and satire for our audience. And <laughs> the other one that I liked, I just because I so appreciate what this was, was the video where you had just had what dental surgery and insisted on filming the ditch. No, people people think that it's dental surgery because I think how often do you see someone who's high as a result of a surgery? But I had gotten shoulder surgery and I was on like the seventh day of recovery. And the reason I was high was because I was I had to take Percocet to stave off the pain. And so that was the first day that I could get out of the lazy boy chair that had been my home for the past week. And I made my dad record that video, which he did not want to do at all. And then immediately upon getting home, I think I probably like vomited and fell asleep for five hours. God, the dream. The dream. <laughs> the relatability of the absolute commitment of comedy. And also when you think something is so funny in the moment and then it is just you afterwards <laughs> that, that understands the point. So it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it was a, an idea that I'd had. I was like, I want to go to the ditches of the neighborhood. I want to do it so bad. Yeah. And then <laughs> I... <laughs> Yeah, repeatedly woke up with that idea. And I was like, well, I guess I have to do it. I got to do it. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you had, I thought, a very fun topic for today, starting with celebrity crushes, which which has a lot of potential for where it went wrong. What were yours? Mine started off strong with Johnny Depp. Uh, that was <laughs> my first crush. And then I moved on to James Franco. But the the one that I still have now is uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah. But like a dream deferred, it's sort of... They all just started to spoil at a certain point. <laughs> right. And I want to be clear that none of these are, whenever I talk about any of these people like spoiling or aging poorly, I'm not talking about aesthetically because I'm like in no way is it fat phobic or, you know, ageist in any way. It's just truly that these people either had moral breakdowns or we were made aware of who they really were. Which is, is so disappointing because it, it's it's not just like a current crush or actor or actress that, that you like uh, where it's like, oh, okay, well, that's disappointing. But like, do I have to undo those childhood memories? Do I feel badly about this? What's the process for me having to make amends for finding Johnny Depp attractive? Do you know how much of my identity I based around that man? Yeah. Like, it's, it's upsetting. <laughs> when a childhood crush like lets you down like that, you're just like, fuck, that was like the blueprint for how I've been basing a lot of my relationships and what I'm right. attracted to. And that's just, now I need to get rid of that? That's a lot of work. It's so bad. <laughs> I, I, I think the one thing that you have as a kid and then you think oh that was so dumb and then you realize again why this was a good safety net is the cartoons you found attractive like I, everyone was obviously the fox from Robin Hood the Robin Hood fox Scar. was yes Scar. right to be fair and, that's another so, that's okay, another barely bad morally dubious man <laughs> well yeah but you realize that pretty early on in the movie like yeah. he wasn't he, he wasn't hide. hiding who he was he was pretty blatant about it <laughs> yeah he was up front I like that he sang his whole song about it <laughs> he was very clear no but you, you like him as a kid and then then you get to be a bit older. You're like, okay, this is dumb. And then you get into adulthood and you see the purity is like, oh, well, Fox Robin Hood is never going to betray me. That's that was a fantastic <laughs> choice. <laughs> I, I guess so. But then you you sort of get judged by how much you are attracted, not only to an animated character, but to an animated animal. Yeah, <laughs> that's when the morals start coming into play again. I don't know of anyone. There are so few people who have a celebrity crush that ages perfectly. Unless you love Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Paul Newman did pretty Paul good. Newman. Yeah. Oh, Paul Newman is a good one. That is a yeah. fantastic celebrity crush. Paul Newman is one of the few like golden boys in the sense that 
like, wow, he did some great stuff. And he just pivoted to salad dressing. And that was the move. And charity. He was like, let me let me give away a ton of money yeah. and make food. <laughs> yeah, it was I mean, it was everyone's dream. That, no, that was fantastic. And I was thinking about why, because, you know, most of the, the women crushes I had growing up are still good. And I was like, oh, it's because all of the men that turned bad were like abusers and horrible people and wouldn't be drummed out of the industry. Women obviously couldn't be challenging or they would be gone, which is a ridiculous double standard. But I, I realize it's made even for it's made it easier for men again for our crushes <laughs> to still be yeah, good and do a golf get off easy <laughs> once again. Right. <laughs> they have to do so little work. Cisgender, heterosexual men. What a thing I've never had to consider before, but now I'm just like, I learned things on my own podcast. I love right. it. Right. We're, we're bad on both <laughs> sides of this, uh, which is, is unfortunate. But no, I mean, for me, uh, when I were talking about this beforehand, I think Allison Hannigan was my first crush from Buffy. Apparently nerdy was a thing for me early on. Uh, and then Rachel Lee Kelk and She's All That, uh, which was fake nerdy because it's like, you know, she's not really a nerd. Uh, <laughs> the one when was surprised by was Rachel Weiss in The Mummy. I wasn't surprised. That wasn't a surprise. Who is that? That was purely that from uh, from the Mummy. I've never seen the Mummy. Hold on, oh, I have to okay. look this up really quick. Please do. Looking up specifically. Oh, Rachel Wise. Yes. <laughs> okay, yes, I know who that is. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Who? Yes, yes I know this person. <laughs> of course, she's gorgeous. Andrew pronounces her name correctly, and it threw me too. Oh, in the German. Yeah. I was yeah. Like, it's you know what it is. It's uh, if it was regular German, I wouldn't do it. But it's like Jewish German, and I feel like it's like I've got to reinforce. That. <laughs> I, I can appreciate that. I get it. Yeah. Is she, she's married to Daniel Craig, correct? I don't know. In my head, she's yes, she single. Is. Mm-hmm. She very much is. Damn it. God, you guys are ruining this for me quick. Okay. She's married uh, to James Bond. So if yeah. you went in there, you're going to I can't, I can't to... top that. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew, you're going to fight Daniel Craig. <laughs> he is the blonde Bond. I am yeah. fascinated. I know this isn't on topic for today, but I'm fascinated by the people who rejected him, who like caused an outrage and boycotted the Bond movies because because they were like, absolutely no way I'm going to accept a bond that looks like that. <laughs> I saw a man on a forum, he goes, this Shrek-alike hero is supposed to be saving the day. I was like, Shrek-alike hero? What an amazing insult. I know, that that is actually a fantastic phrase out of context. On the other hand, like, I, I think he's done such a good job with this character. He's been great. He's been like one of the best. I, I'd say I'd say he's my favorite Bond. I know a he's lot amazing. of people love people love Sean Connery. People in, like grew up with Pierce, Pierce Brosnan, so they have. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, he was like he had one good movie, but he's had such a great performance in all of them that you kind of like let die another day slide. Yeah. Like you still <laughs> let yourself enjoy Pierce Brosnan and Bond. But like Daniel Craig's my favorite. But it's so wild to me that people are like, oh, he doesn't have brown hair. Well, this is just <laughs> PC culture run amok. I love the implication too that that means in their mind there are no blonde heroes in real life <laughs> it's impossible for them to be good <laughs> i don't know if i ever really trust blonde men i mean but yeah. <laughs> that's a personal thing we're naturally suspicious but yeah not as a good reason <laughs> yeah i would never project that onto a movie star and it's so funny because people are like we're ready for a black bond i was like six years ago <laughs> they were rejecting this extremely aryan man i don't know if that's gonna happen happen anytime soon yeah i mean obviously idris elba was the name thrown out for that first which was like i mean that felt like the perfect choice that's a childhood crush it's doing okay if anyone yeah. out there 
had Idris and I do as an adult, of course, have a crush on Idris Elba, but not one of, unfortunately, I can't claim him as a childhood crush. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Andrew asked for mine, I was just like, I don't like, I couldn't think of any, like all my like crushes, like celebrity crushes came later. And I realized I do have one and it is when I was, and I was a child at the time. So it's cool, but it was Lindsay Lohan in the parent trap. I was just like <laughs> the number one crush I, I had with like, I played the movie like all the time. And like, my family was just like, oh, this, this kid really like loves this movie and though i'm just like no i just love this this girl and how she can both be both like full of moxie and spunk but also british and fancy i love that you love talent clearly exactly to talent that was what it was about it was yeah. pure yeah i i told everyone i was like she's both of them like that they had like a disney channel like featurette before the movie came out where they're like can you believe that she could be both people and i was like do you guys know that she is capable of this range number one fanboy for Lindsay Lohan. Oh, for sure. This was a, a conversation with my girlfriend recently who, when, you know, is the smartest person I know. And she said she just found out recently that it was one person. <laughs> because that's how good the performance was. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, that's so solid. Amazing. I support it. I support it. Meanwhile, I was watching like What's Eating Gilbert Grape and being like, this is cinema. Yeah. <laughs> the long red hair. Johnny is really delivering. Oh my God, who's that? It's Leonardo DiCaprio put a pin in that for later yeah. you know and then what else was I watching Edward Scissorhands my dad watched a lot of like movies with me that in retrospect I don't know how appropriate it was like he watched Seven with me a lot and so oh, I also wow. loved oh, yeah I that also loved Brad Pitt I loved Seven when I was a small child I was like this is great Seven yeah. is an insanely good movie just like I wouldn't think of it as like a like let's throw this on with the kid yeah. no and then of course even that one's kind of ruined now because Kevin Spacey is in it. God damn like, it, you're right. Jesus. Kevin Spacey was, I have said him as my favorite actor before all of this. And and now it's like, well, obviously off the list. I, I loved him. I, I liked his range. See, I was lucky to have Seven because from a young age, I was just terrified of him, which is why I never really trusted him too much. Yeah, you caught it. You called it early. <laughs> yeah, thank God. I watched House of Cards and I was like, okay, I can admire the show, but I do not like this man. God, right. you are so right. <laughs> yeah. I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so we had a specific celebrity for the, the disaster of today, which you picked as Marlon Brando. Problematic king. Exactly. He was <laughs> so good. Oh, yes. Continue, please. Yes. You know, he he was, I mean, I, I loved him. I, I don't think I saw any movie where I didn't love him. Then again, I didn't see some of his worst movies. Made a lot of bad ones. I was about to say, you are, you're lying if you think that like he just did only hits. No, no. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I see the string of him, but ultimately I watch. No skips. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. If you go through them, you've honestly got more bombs than hits. But my absolute favorite was Julius Caesar. Oh, 53. I Very only know because I just read that. Please don't, yeah. <laughs> don't think I'm too obsessive. Yeah. No, it was amazing. And I'm James Mason has always been one of my favorites, too. I, I'm not Googling that. I hope he's not problematic. I think I need that one. Uh, but no, I mean, I, it was just a fantastic performance. One of my favorite movies ever. Obviously, the speeches in it are phenomenal. And that was, I, I think, when I, I first saw that after that, I was like hooked on Brando and then find out officially he was in, in streetcar and on the waterfront at mutiny. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy actually about, or there was at the time when he was cast in Julius Caesar because people were like, uh, this mumbling guy supposed to deliver grand speeches? Right. How's that going to happen? And even Marlon himself was like, it was absolute chaos. 
chaos and like a huge thing that I was cast in this movie because I was on set with all these classically trained actors. And then I think so many other people affiliated with the movie were like, that's absolutely not true. Yeah. <laughs> he was a huge name at the time. No one was scoffing at him. We were like, oh, that's Marlon Brando. We got the lead from Streetcar to be Mark Anthony. Right. Like people were yeah. not. This wasn't like when you cast an actor as Batman and people like throw a fit <laughs> online. This was somebody like being cast as Mark Anthony who just was previously in an Oscar winning film. Like that is not a huge stretch. Yeah, it right. was like two British people said something rude to him and he was like, oh my God, all the cards are stacked against me. <laughs> which is, he's very sensitive, you know, or he was. Oh, he's incredibly sensitive, which we'll, we'll get into. But his performance, Mark Anthony, that is like, I, I studied as everyone who listens to this podcast know, I got a musical theater degree. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. From the University of Alabama, because I'm hey. a man of contrast. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know they had that major there. <laughs> They're one of the best in the country, which is a weird Whoa. thing for them to have. I do know their Shakespeare Festival is very good, apparently. Alabama's, right? Alabama Shakes is, is a really big Shakespeare Festival, yeah. And mm-hmm. a lot of great people have come from there. Norbert Leo Butts uh, yep. was, a, yes, he was a, he got his master's at Alabama, was part of that uh, Shakespeare Festival. It was a big deal. It's a big recruiter. I was in a play with one of his classmates, and he was like, yeah, Norbert's thinking of coming. Ooh, I think gonna wow. Come. <laughs> I think he never did. Spoiler alert. Oh, I'm, yeah, he was never going to show up. I, it, no. But if you told me that in college, would have lost my mind. I'm the biggest, like, Norbert Leo Butts fan ever. I love that for you. It's <laughs> my least cool obsession is just being like... It's cool with me. Oh, yeah. I, I told people everyone to run. I was like, look, this man had last five years. He was Fiero. He was the original <laughs> Dan in Next to Normal in the, in the workshop recording. And then unrecognizable in Bloodline. So good in Bloodline. <laughs> I did not Fantastic know that was one. him. <laughs> I was like, what? I watched Bloodline specifically because I was like, Tyler Chandler and Norbert Leo Butts put me in. And then Linda Cardellini was there. Like, c- come on. I think this counts as one of your childhood crushes. <laughs> I might yeah. actually be one of my childhood crushes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is actually very fair. This could probably, I, I sang only Norbert Leo Butts songs for my audition. Uh, it was it was did a lot. Really? I, was a, I was a fan, a big oh fan, God. still a fan. I think he's still a great guy. But anyways. Until proven otherwise, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Until until something comes out, I'm just I'm just gonna keep riding this way. But anyways, I got the major, I got the I got the degree. Uh, but one of the big things that in my Shakespeare class was like we'd go over performances and everything, and everyone would sh- talk, you know, Olivier, and you're just like, oh, do you really want to highlight Olivier? And it's just like, it's real woof. Blackface versus Marlon's brown face. Uh, who are we gonna pick? Yeah. <laughs> but like his Mark Antony, that his French Romans countryman, probably the best performance of that ever put on film. When I first saw that, I replayed it until I memorized it. I was just astounded. Uh, it, it was incredible. Uh, so it, it was, I I just loved it. I, although I, I really did think James Mason's uh, speech beforehand was was just as, as good. And because he was ambitious, we slew him. I was overwhelmed by that. And then just because I, I remember thinking, well, he can't counter that. That's so good. <laughs> and then Brando gets up there and just does the complete opposite of, of the I don't need to convince you. You know, you know, because you feel it. And, you know, he was so good at evoking that emotion. So, yeah, it was just my absolute favorite of his. Mm-hmm. He was just really a ball of emotions at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that for that. He just like there was a guy at a gym he went to and he just kept watching the guy at the gym and literally just copied everything that guy did. And then on opening night, like gave the guy two tickets and the boxer came and he sat in the audience. He was like, oh, my God, that's that guy from the gym and he's playing me. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think every actor who like bases a role on someone else has to give them tickets and get like a review. I agree. I agree. <laughs> that, that was what Rocky Graziato, right? Yes, he just happened to yes. find his gym and go to it, which is insane. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, the idea of like, of course he recognizes this. <laughs> this is, you gave him the tickets for it. That, that must have been so strange to see it up there. And especially as, as, as what the character was, because it's not like he's up there playing a good guy. It's to see yourself in this horrifying character. Yeah. Do you think he had a moment of like, oh no, I got to reevaluate my life. Right. Is that how I come off? What yeah. am I doing that makes people think I would beat my wife right. <laughs> and do all of this stuff? What was I doing at the gym that made you think that this is who I was as a person? Right. Man, I was just doing my workout. Right. <laughs> what the hell? Well, it is that 1950s gym. So he was probably standing there just going like, so I hit my wife the other day. And like, yeah. Quite possible. Quite possible. And one I, I definitely want to hit because of Wen's illustrious uh, musical theater background is Guys and Dolls, which was the strangest choice when your feelings on this look marlon brando fantastic actor fantastic actor i would not cast him in a musical uh that's that's my own personal choice but oh okay cindy you got thoughts oh i don't know like you like i was wrong <laughs> no no i was agreeing with you yeah. okay <laughs> i did not mean to indicate that i was just sort of remembering like i don't know why they would like stack the odds against him so much like making his counterpart frank sinatra right like, why would you pick someone who could sing so much better than him it's, it's just downright rude like yes. it doesn't carry over like Sinatra's not so good that it's gonna make up for everyone else and you think we would learn that lesson but Russell Crowe was in Les Mis like yep. that's so true Pierce Brosnan was in Mamma Mia oh, wow God, yeah. wow I didn't even think about it like that I mean that's very true and I what, what I read about him and Sinatra was once Sinatra could do it in one take because he's, he's Sinatra and with Brando's he said they were actually it's not just redoing it they had to cut it together from different takes because he would get a line right in one and wrong in another. Because he wouldn't learn his lines at all. Yes. (laughs) And he apparently could not carry a note unless they cut it all together from like eight different takes. (laughs) Luck be a lady tonight. (laughs) He's just sort of talking. (laughs) Right. But uh, Sinatra hated him for this. And yeah, as you said, you know, he wouldn't memorize his lines. He insisted on on having them held up around stage. (laughs) So what he did to Sinatra was there was a scene where Sinatra had to eat cheesecake. So he would do the entire scene and then flub the last line. And he did this at least nine times, forcing Sinatra to eat nine cheesecakes. That's incredible. Yeah. What a king. What a king. This insane, <laughs> passive aggressive revenge for Sinatra <laughs> insulting him <laughs> all the time. Oh my God. And wow, in great company of Sinatra, another problematic man himself. Oh yeah. Old blue eyes. <laughs> yeah. Old blue eyes. Giving out black eyes all the time, yeah. supposedly. <laughs> But yeah, that I like that it was his first I read on I was like skimming his Wikipedia to make sure I could remember everything. And they were like in his first and last musical theater appearance. Right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's that's valid. That was the right move. Were there other favorites you guys had? I mean, The Godfather. You can't yeah. you can't not say The Godfather. Sure. And something that fucking ruined my brain when I did the math was he was like 47 when he got cast in that role which is they were worried he was too young yeah Yeah. like i know people like kind of aged like milk then like if you 
watch All in the Family now, you're like, those people are in their 40s. And you're like, they can't be in their 40s. That's ridiculous. No, this was like the rub Crisco on before you tan era. And you know what I should have, you know, for breakfast is steak every day. It's like, yeah, it was rough, but still they, they aged him well. They aged him well. And like, I always just had this idea that this was like Brando near the end of his life career. Same. And like, no, not that at all. He did it for another 30 years. Yeah, he lived for much longer. <laughs> to be fair, he was in like a career slump where he was almost untouchable by studios. So Francis Ford Coppola had to do so much to convince them to actually bring him on. And they debated in the beginning, I think, between him and Laurence Olivier because they were trying to think who were the best actors. Like, because what we want is like the the pinnacle of male acting as the godfather. And he even like, I, I think he was offered something like $100,000 to do it and points on the back end. But he was so hard up for cash at this point of his career that he cashed in his points for another $100,000 and missed out on around $11 million from the gross of the of the movie. So yeah, he was at a low point. I mean, yeah, he just burned through cash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just had, I mean, to begin the 60s. So he came off of Julius Caesar, Sayonara, Guys and Dolls. But then the 60s, he directed and starred in One-Eyed Jacks, which was a huge flop. That was the start of the, yeah. <laughs> that was flop after flop. Yeah, Mutiny on the Bounty, great movie, bad reception. Also, the reputation he got from Mutiny on the Bounty of everyone said he was, he must have been trying to sabotage this movie. Just insane stories about his behavior, including making the crew set up and build a wedding for his friend on the island. I didn't know that. They need to shoot the movie. And he's like, okay, but like, you know, we got stuff to build here. (laughs) So he uh, apparently made it significantly harder, of course, would still would not learn his lines as claims, of course, that it was artistic license that if he said it, if he was reading it for the first time, it it would be saying it naturally. Yeah, which is like, I I sort of understand what he's saying, where it's like, if something is only kind of in my head, and then I get the visual reminder it's going to sound much more natural coming out of my mouth but it's so inconsiderate yeah it oh is. yeah it's so wildly inconsiderate and also i love i don't know if you read this i think it was maybe dustin hoffman who said this but he was like yeah marlon would do this thing where the cameras would start rolling and even though the director said action he would talk to the crew members being like how was your weekend is your weekend good and then <laughs> yeah. after he got to a point in the conversation where he felt it was natural enough he could be like oh that's great johnny you owe me money you know like yeah. then he would start the scene because he was like now i sound like i'm actually having a conversation right but at the same time was like i don't believe in method acting but what he did believe in was an extremely naturalistic approach to acting which meant that he was just truly kind of being himself in everything it's wild to think of the two like opposite spectrums of acting of just like i'm not going to learn jack shit and it's going to sound very <laughs> natural because the word Words will be occurring to me as I'm saying them, mm-hmm. which like holds up. It makes like a thousand takes like Kelsey Grammer is like was famous because he refused to learn his lines for Frasier. Really? And that show ran for 11 seasons. Yeah. <laughs> so that had to have been the most frustrating thing in the like they probably have 22 seasons worth of footage to make yeah. <laughs> those 11 seasons. And then mm-hmm. you have like people like Jared Leto who are just like, I'm going to mail you dead rats. Oh, what an example. Yeah. <laughs> of method acting. I'm going to go purely so and become this 
this character that it's just like both of these are incredibly annoying things that you're doing for right. the very silly craft of acting. Right. It's so silly, which Marlon is noted as saying for many, many years that it is one of the like silliest things you can do. There's absolutely nothing dumber than acting. He did all these interviews. They'd be like, Marlon, don't you think that you're denying the world um, your talents and your gifts? And he'd be like, I'm denying them nothing. Yeah. The world is made no better by what I do. He was one of the most self-deprecating people I've ever seen or listened to in my life. No, I mean, he. it's, it's weird because he, he seemed to, there were stages where he had huge ego about his success, but mm-hmm. never seemed to believe he deserved it or was good enough for it. It was just, but he still had all that money and power. So he was going to make it hard for everyone else. Yeah, I was about to say, you can't tell people to build a wedding for your friend and, and still be like self-deprecating and be like, but I'm just a guy at the right. end of the day. Like, yeah, I think he sort of existed in two planes of like narcissism and then extreme depression where he thought that he was, yes, he had the sense of exceptionalism and that he was a gift to the world. But then also he was like, there's no one worse than me. There's no one stupider than me, you know, just and he really swung back and forth. Ugh, what a man. As a comic, I also get that. Yeah. So, so maybe <laughs> yeah, I should judge relatable. that harshly. It's, <laughs> it's relatable, but I don't think we'd go to the lengths that he went to. Like, I I don't know if we'd ever do what Marlon did in his life. I mean, that's fair. I mean, but we're also not the people that are ever going to be in Mutiny and the Bounty and be like, I like this island and then just buy one next to it, which he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and I think that might also be where he met one of his wives. Yes. One of many. <laughs> <laughs> he had 11 kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and early in his career, too, I mean, he was committed. Of course, he, he trained with Stella Adler. There's stories about his depth of research that I feel like his statements of, you know, seeing the words for the first time because he really wanted to inhabit the character makes sense if you can picture that character well enough to be saying it. I know what I'm saying now because I'm just me. The idea of doing that in character and it being better the first time is insane to me. But I, I feel like he was so committed early on, he, he felt like he could inhabit that character to understand that. But then after he got to the successful stage and so much of his success came from the way he was seen as a rebel and admired for it, that it became more important for him to be portraying that all of the time. And he had to be a rebel, I guess, not just the establishment, but Hollywood and movies in general and acting and kind of. Pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. 
Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Everything he was doing. Well, I think there was also a bit of like a Kanye effect, which is um, when a famous man loses his mother kind of unexpectedly and never really recovers from it. And that marks a behavioral shift in that man. So I think he lost his mom like midway through the 50s, right after on the waterfront. And he was super close to her. She was an alcoholic as he was growing up. And he used to say that his mother cared for the bottle more than caring for them. And how he originally started performing in any sense was he would imitate the animals around their farm to try to distract his mother from drinking. And so... I think he tied a lot of it to his mother and then she passed away and he was sort of like, why am I doing this? Like, this is so stupid. And then started to have an existential crisis about it that sort of spiraled into all of the rest of his work. That's a really good point because I remember that was after his mother died. That was about the stage where the movies got a lot worse. But I hadn't connected that. You're right. That was also the stage where he started talking about acting very differently, where it suddenly became this dumb thing he was doing instead of this thing he was proud of. And he got more stories about uh, how he did this because he didn't want to do anything else. And this was just a thing. Well, it became a means to an end. Yeah, right. And I think it wasn't even that he saw acting as the only thing he could do. It was just the first thing in his life that he actually got excited about. And unfortunately, he happened to be insanely talented at it. Right. So (laughs) that is what his entire life became uh, based around. And then he sort of had like, I guess, a a midlife crisis, even though he was only like in his 30s, where he was like, what am I doing? What do I actually like? Like, I was watching this Connie Chung interview with him. And he was like, I don't think there's anything I don't like. But how would I know? Because I haven't gotten to do everything I want. And she's like, at one point, talking to him about The Godfather, which goes back to your favorite of his movies. And she was like, oh, well, I know for a fact that James Caan and Al Pacino were like, oh, that you were a teacher to them, that you imparted a lot of wisdom. He was like, how do you know that? She was like, you don't think that they think that? And he went, I don't know what any human being is thinking. How how would I know that? And she was like, I read it. I read that they said that. And he goes, look, don't believe anything you read, anything you hear. (laughs) And she goes, she like digs a second. She goes, you must understand. And he goes, you know what I know about Jimmy Caan? He's the funniest man I've ever met in my life. That's what I know about him because that's my brain. I don't know his brain. <laughs> and she goes, you must understand that people consider you to be one of the greatest actors of all time. And he has this huge dog that walks into the frame and he goes, you know who's the greatest actor of all time? Tim is the greatest actor of all time. He pretends like he loves me because he actually just wants food. <laughs> and then he, hits, he like hits the dog on the behind and the dog leaves. And Connie Chung is just sort of sitting there like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I love this story so much. An amazing interview. It's it's amazing because it's just constantly, literally at a certain point, you can tell that they've been there for hours because the lighting is different. And Connie starts talking to him. She asks him a very point blank question. He goes, look, they've done studies about twins. And he starts going into the study. And she, <laughs> at one point, just falls back in her chair and starts pretending to snore. <laughs> so you can tell that he's been doing this repeatedly throughout the interview. And yeah, he's he's okay with it because he's like, yeah, I do talk a lot. That, 
<laughs> that is insane. And th that dog, by the way, is Dr. Tim. After he did Godfather, anytime he got an interview request, he would insist that the request must be faxed to Dr. Tim. <laughs> and then Dr. Tim would respond saying he's not available right now. <laughs> so just, I mean, I feel like we've, we've mixed the good and bad here, but we, we kind of covered a bit of the where it went wrong in the beginning too, because Marlon was so all over the pace. But where did it go wrong for you? Was there a point where you're like, this is it. There's, he's just done. He's too far. Well, it really hit a note in the past few years where Maria Schneider, his co-star from Last Tango in Paris, came forward. And apparently there's a very, I haven't seen the movie. There's a very graphic scene in the movie where his character is supposed to assault her with a stick of butter. And apparently the director went to him and was like, I have this idea. You're going to like stick this piece of butter in her butt and we're not going to tell her like because I want to get her reaction on screen. So they did that on camera and that's the take that's in the movie because they only did it once. And a few years ago, the actress came forward and she was like, yeah, I did feel to quote her a little raped and I Marlon didn't apologize to me afterwards. We didn't talk about it. We just moved on. But I was humiliated. And that's why they told me they told me that that's what they wanted. And the director has said that, like, he has no regrets. He's like, yeah, I probably should have told her about that. But I didn't because I wanted an authentic human reaction. She was 19. It was horrifying. Disgusting. So he was complicit in that and people started talking about him again. And I was like, oh, OK. It was really disturbing. Also, authentic human reaction. They're actors. Nothing else in the movie had to be an authentic human reaction. You trusted they could fake that. Mm -hmm. This one you had to do for real and traumatize her. And it was it was horrifying to read about. Yeah. And he was complicit in that and obviously the one doing it. And so I was like, I really don't know, sir. Yeah. <laughs> this might have to be close to the also like towards the end of his life. I don't know how many people know this, but he became very close with Michael Jackson. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. Spent like most of his days at Neverland Ranch. And I just, yeah, I, I questioned that keeping of company. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My favorite Brando Michael Jackson thing here, though. So I know exactly what it's going to be. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> when, when Michael Jackson is giving the concert, and he has Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor appear as guest stars. Mm -hmm. Weird guest stars to bring out. Weird guest concert. stars. Yeah. <laughs> He's having this concert when 9-11 happens. Oh, no. And when the planes hit the towers, Michael Jackson said the three of them need to flee to California because they could be targets of a terrorist attack. Ambitious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, look, there's a lot of egos in this room. <laughs> right. where they're like, they're, they're trying to attack America. And what better representation than Michael Jackson, Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor? We got to hightail it out of here. And because everything is shut down, they can't get a flight and or to assistance or anything. So the three of them decide to drive themselves to California. Can they make a movie about this where uh, what's his name played Michael Jackson and it was completely inappropriate? Joseph Fine. Did they? I know they talked about it. I didn't know if it ever got made. I don't think it got released, but he played Michael Jackson. People are like, that's not OK. I heard they were talking about doing it at like 2016. I had no idea they actually filmed there it. There are clips of it. Because well, it was it was the dumb, the most insane thing. Plus, they only made it to Ohio because <laughs> Taylor and Jackson kept getting annoyed that Marlon Brando made them stop at every KFC they passed. Uh, that sounds correct. Yeah. Yeah, he was a he definitely had an eating disorder. He did. And and that part uh, is is absolutely is sad that he was, he was very much a, a victim of that, too. Uh, but the yeah. idea of annoying people on a car trip because of it, instead of just getting a lot at one KFC, uh, was what was so surprising. I think he was like weirdly compulsive. Like he had a lot of weird.
weird particular things about himself. And I also think he lived a little bit like in denial at times. Like I think every time he went to a new KFC, he was like, okay, this is the last time. And then they would pass another one and he was like, oh, but actually I want to go to this one too. Like, I wonder if each time he was making another decision, like it wasn't like we're going to stop at every KFC. It was a new decision each time, if that makes sense. Oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that would certainly make sense. Obviously that his eating uh, disorder came into play a lot in his roles and his acting in general. Oh, are you going to talk about Apocalypse Now? I am. Yeah. Because that's my favorite one to talk about. Please tell us about Apocalypse Now. No, I just, I, it is one of the most disastrous, uh, I think, like movie making processes of all time. It took almost a year to film. He showed up having not read Heart of Darkness, which (laughs) the movie is based upon. I love the fact that he showed up. He had promised Francis Ford Coppola that he would lose weight. He showed up extremely heavier than when he had promised to lose weight. And also because he had not read A Heart of Darkness was like a colonel named Kurtz would never be lost in the jungle. (laughs) He needed to change his name to Laylee. And so they changed his name to Laylee. And then after they were done shooting over 200 hours of film, he read Heart of Darkness by himself because through the process, Francis Ford Coppola was reading it to him out loud. Incredible. Yeah. When he finally read it by himself, he goes, oh, okay, I recognize the significance. We got to change it back. (laughs) So they had to do a ton of dialogue in ADR because they had to change all the names back. He had to be filmed in shadow because he was around like five, seven, but they wanted Kurtz to look six, five because Coppola was like, okay, maybe I can change it so that he's not emaciated, but he's a man obsessed with consuming things. And so he is a really big man. And yeah, that worked. But then Marlon refused to learn any of the lines and would just go on 20 minute rants. And then when he was done, he'd be like, I can't give you anything more. I'm giving you you everything. Except the scripts. That was was a non-starter. Imagine any other job where you try that, where it's like, here, like, I need you to just do the taxes. And they're like, instead, I drew you this picture of a cat and it's a really good cat. I feel like you need to accept this. The IRS probably will too. And this was his approach to everything at this point. It was like, no, you just, just trust me. I'm going to do it my way. I haven't read the book, didn't read the script, but my thing is the best one. And also never going to. Never you can to. read it out loud to me while I'm eating KFC right here. Right. But that's it. That was it. He had a, a deal where he'd be paid a million dollars a week for three weeks of work. And if he can stretch that out because he hasn't read any of this and he they have to keep shooting because he won't say the lines right. He gets paid a lot more. So many of those days were spent just with Francis Ford Coppola reading him that book, like just going through it with him and reading the script out loud to him. And when What's unfortunate about it is like he did deliver one of the greatest movie lines of all it time. Was great. <laughs> yeah. It's unfortunate the process it took to get there. You have to ask yourself if it was worth it. But he did like that line is still quoted today. Two of his lines are in like the the best movie lines of all time lists all the time. Yeah. No. And and it's it's so frustrating that he was so good when he got it right, because like nobody is is worth this. The amount of money it costs and and the having to frustrate every single other person working. But he was so good. (laughs) And it's just infuriating. Like, I, I know people that are really good that 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 are good people too. You want them to have it. But still, they're they're not Brando good. <laughs> well, I think we're seeing that less and less 
uh, celebrities that are so difficult to work with, but their talent outshines that. Like, I feel like those people are being tolerated less and less. I'm trying to think of the last person who sort of fits into that. I mean, I think a big part of that, it's more about IP than it is about the actual actor bringing people into the theaters. I mean, right. you'll go see the movie that stars Marlon Brando. You know, I I came up, we you know, we probably grew up in an age where like, oh, the new Tom Cruise movie is out. You can't name the title, but you know, Tom Cruise is in a movie so you're going to see it. And now it's just like, yeah, The Rock sells tickets, but only because he attaches himself to popular intellectual property. You know, it, it's not just like we're all going to go see the new The Rock movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, although whenever I do, I'm happy with it. I'm I'm consistently entertained by The Rock. <laughs> he the does. Rock, well, I think part of that, I hope he never lets us down, but he seems like a genuinely good person. <laughs> <laughs> right, which is why I like it too. And I think that's part of the frustration with putting up with this is that they know anything bad they do is now going to end up to the public. And if they were watching the movie because of that person and the public is only going to turn against them because they find out they're a terrible person, it's just not worth it anymore. Yeah, but it's so hard because um, with people like Marlon, like his social causes were very progressive for the time. And he did sort of balance like being such a troubled, messed up person with fighting for people whose voices he thought were being suppressed. I mean, and you look at when he rejected the Oscar and sent uh, Sashin, I think Sashin Littlefeather up to accept it for him. And there were people like Clint Eastwood in the audience, like booing her and him, but just like actively booing Raquel Welch, making a little joke afterwards and uh, John Wayne looking like he was about to murder someone, you know? uh, John Wayne, also the worst. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just absolutely a horrible person. Horrible people. Like the fact that Clint Eastwood and John Wayne were the ones against him is like probably more of a one up for Marlon than anything. Of course. It's like not surprising. He was, you know, he was best friends with James Baldwin when they were both starting out in New York. I was about to say they were both friends. Yeah. Yeah, That's one of my favorite because I love James Baldwin as well. And the way that they talked about each other, the way that they wrote about each other is really beautiful, I think. And I think they both bonded over the fact that they had mothers who they were very attached to, but who were also very troubled and were raised by fathers who kind of hated them. And so they both had very similar daddy and mommy issues and they really admired each other's talent. And I think it really benefited both of them to have that love. And Marlon, at the very least, had many male friendships like that throughout his life that he was very invested in. I don't know if you saw the thing about his friend's ashes. Oh, I did. I did not. Inform me. His childhood best friend turned adult best friend named Wally Cox passed away unexpectedly. And Marlon stole the ashes from his wife. And she tried to get them back. But then at a certain point, she was like, I think he needs them more than me. Yeah. Wow. thing to say. When he died, he had his ashes put in uh, with his best friends. So (laughs) just an insane thing to do. And they insisted that the relationship was not homosexual, even though Marlon had had relationships with men throughout his life. They're like, no, but that one's still platonic. They were just incredibly attached to each other, I guess. (laughs) And this is a really just reminding me because we're on uh, John John Wayne and the uh, Rocky Graziano story. So Wyatt Earp, after he was done being a sheriff, went to Hollywood to try to get into acting, which did not (laughs) go well for him. But there was a kid on the lot 
lot who watched him and imitated everything he did to learn his style. And that was John Wayne. John Wayne was playing Wyatt Earp. While Wyatt Earp could not get a job, John Wayne playing Wyatt Earp, that weird swagger and, and uh, drawn out words was just him playing, which I mean, was just infuriating <laughs> for Wyatt Earp. So this is how he got his entire career was just by ripping off Wyatt Earp, who was trying to get work and was just broke and could not. To be fair, I'm going to say that I think James Franco tried to do that with Marlon Brando and James Dean. <laughs> I yeah. mean, that's very, very true. true. <laughs> yeah, it worked out less successfully for him. Yeah, very much yeah. so. But yeah. thank God for that. Which, by the way, I remember being 20 years old in New York and James Franco had directed a play and I went to see that play three times because oh. I was like, oh my God, maybe he'll be in the audience of one of them. Horrible play. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. It was an audience of like 40 people. Like that was the capacity. It was so intimate. I'm sure those actors thought that I was stalking them or something. Like, <laughs> oh, the things we do. Apparently you just need to slide in his DMs and be like, hey, I'm 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have. I don't know if I was cute enough at the time to um, really reel him in, but I think that's a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> a blessing yeah. for me. You might have dodged a bullet. I feel like we've done a lot of in their defense already on Marlon Brando. I also, so I just want to plug one more thing good and then I'll also do one more thing of a funny story that I love. Uh, so one was when he did Muna on the Bounty, he fell in love with Tahiti. He actually ended up buying an island, which was a, a fun rich guy thing to do. But he also started an environmental laboratory that protected seabirds and turtles that was in the area that I believe uh, stood for a while until a 1983 hurricane uh, destroyed a lot of the structures. But he was very big on the preserving the natural beauty of Tahiti, which very good thing. Right. It's crazy how many of his like he supported the American Indian movement. He supported he was at the March on Washington and he gave a lot of money to the Black Panthers. He has spoken very vocally about how minorities are portrayed on television and in film and why there is such a big problem with how they were being portrayed at the time. Social causes. He was great. It was really yeah, just working with him. That was so terrible. Oh, just I and then the tragedy that followed him, like the fact that his son, I don't know if you know about this one, his son um, murdered his sister's fiance or baby daddy. And then a few years later after having, and she was pregnant at the time, she had the baby a few years later, she took her own life. And that child is now a model, which is insane. <laughs> He's like in his thirties and just casually a model. But yeah, I just, I, I don't, the amount of tragedy he had later in life, like I don't blame him for his eating disorder, like flaring up and for him just trying to keep his life together. But I do question a lot of his behavior. Yeah. Very much so. And one last fun story of that behavior. So yes, he made a lot of money when he did Apocalypse Now. Yes, tons of money. However, he made more money doing the two weeks of work he did on the first Superman movie. Before was a million dollars a week. He was essentially making two million dollars a week plus points on the back end, which in Superman, one of the biggest movies of all time when it came out. He got paid $3.7 million in just upfront costs, where he also tried to argue that he should never be on camera and the <laughs> character of Jor-El, Superman's father, should be a radioactive bagel with a disembodied voice. And he would pitch this and refuse to come off the idea. And they were like, no, please just put on the goofy costume and, and say the fun lines, do not do this. And he'd be like, but the bagel idea, the green, <laughs> levitating, glowing bagel is, is what he wanted what he was really aiming for. Look, he's an idea guy. He's an idea guy. He's going to throw him out. I love it. The Connie Chung interview. He says something like, 
Broadway because he has just done the film A Dry White Season that he was nominated for another Oscar that was about apartheid. And he said, like, they gave me the script. Uh, they acknowledged that there were weaknesses in the script. Uh, and I said, well, you know, let me take a look at it. Let me uh, get my hands in there. <laughs> he was like, I've I've never I've never been in a great movie. Is what he says. I've never been in a great movie. I've never been in a good movie. They bring me these scripts and I bring so much to the character. So in his one of his last great performances, he was just improvising all the lines again because that is the mindset he went in with. He was like, your script sucks. I can bring something to this. <laughs> and I mean, sometimes it, it worked. As, as Wynn said in this one, he just didn't want to do it. He also pitched a suitcase and the director realized he wasn't crazy. He just didn't want to be on camera. I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> he was recorded for hours talking. So yeah, at one point he said, you're you're a grocer. You're a, uh, what is it? You're a clerk sent by a grocer to collect a bill or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, that was at the end of like a two hour rant. Right. You got four <laughs> seconds out of that and put it together. And of course it worked. That's a great line. Yeah, it, it's a testament <laughs> to the editing. It took three years to edit Apocalypse Now. Yes. But, you know, he, he says that I've never had a good script, but when he was arguing that this should be a bagel, one of the co-stars said, have you, have you read the script? <laughs> and he said, no. And they said, why? And he said, it might be terrible. <laughs> And then he, he finally agreed to come on camera after he read the script and found out it was good. He refused to read it in case it was bad and kept pitching this bagel idea. So he said to the director, nobody knows what Jor-El looks like. And he, the director said, everyone knows what Jor-El looks like. He looks like Marlon Brando. At which point, I'm not sure it was nice or it was a, this is it. <laughs> you're doing this. You're getting on camera. It was a great thing. And like, they stole the same strategy. They were just like, how are we going to legitimize Superman as a movie to general audiences? And they said, what if we got Marlon Brando to come in and play Jor-El? And they they copied that, you know, 11 years later. Like, how are we going to make people take Batman seriously? Let's get Jack Nicholson to play the Joker. I mean, it was the exact same strategy and it worked gangbusters both times. <laughs> it absolutely did. They were buddies, too. I don't even want to imagine what the two of them got up to on a crazy night. Oh, God, no. A whole other episode of just <laughs> debauchery. I saw a tweet once that was like, I do not want to know where Jack Nicholson's hands have been. No. <laughs> like, ever. I don't want to know any detail. It's absolutely yeah and, and the two of them they were next door neighbors great friends and I'm sure made each other worse. <laughs> oh yeah I mean I think Jack Nicholson might have been one of the guys throwing Burger King over the back wall of the estate. He was yeah. <laughs> when Marlon's wife locked the fridge and he would eat Burger King the bushes. I could see Jack Nicholson doing that too that's a very Jack Nicholson movie. Yeah. <laughs> Screw your wife she wants you to be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that too it was just a coincidence incidents like he just happened to be throwing burgers over everyone's yard <laughs> marlon brando lucked out yeah you're not special yeah. <laughs> i'm just out for a nice night i'm walking my dog yeah. <laughs> we didn't even get to island of dr moreau which is all of this times a thousand i haven't even seen it have you i haven't either because it's just i mean i think i watched about 10 minutes of it highlights he refused to change out the moo moo the whole time he painted his face white and was wearing like very red lipstick and looked <laughs> reminiscent of a clown he wore a KFC bucket on his head to prevent filming for a while. Oh, no. The one I read was an ice bucket, but yeah, I would not be. I also read Colander. Apparently, he had a lot of buckets to go through. Also, he, of course, didn't memorize his lines, but he was upgraded from the cards now. He was being fed his lines through an earpiece. Which he repeated in the score with De Niro. And it was supposed to be like a big thing of just like both Don Corleones are going to be on the same movie. And it's just like Brando's clearly just sitting there just like. Yeah. <laughs> but the big thing with it this time was that it picked up police frequency. So he actually said the line, there's been a robbery at Wolf worths because uh, <laughs> he was being fed it through his earpiece. God, I love it. <laughs> wow. They're, they don't make them like that 
anymore, which is probably yeah. for the better. <laughs> it's probably for the best, but they really don't make them like Marlon anymore. God, they don't. But I think we pretty much nailed it. We 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 went through childhood crushes, Marlon Brando, what we love, where it went wrong, but also the fact that he was a complicated person with a full life and good and bad to him. I think we managed to sum up an entire man in one hour because we're that <laughs> good. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing work. I mean, normally we do an in their defense here, but we kind of defended it throughout the entire thing. He made it difficult to... Yeah, a little bit challenging. <laughs> yeah, to just give it a, a, a straight up, uh, this is where the problem was. Right. right. Well, that's it, because it was just it was just all over. And consistently mm-hmm. you're like, okay, but but maybe... Because ultimately they're in their defense is just, okay, but did you see the movie? Okay, it was, it was so good though. <laughs> and once again, we have to wonder if it was worth it. Right. I love the man, and I'm like, was this worth Francis Ford Coppola losing 100 pounds due to stress? Right. <laughs> was this worth it? Absolutely insane. So yeah, I mean, we'll we'll call that wrapped up. I mean, that's that's I think Marlon Brando. Uh, and guys, if if you haven't, please let's just each recommend a Marlon Brando movie. I'm I'm going with Julius Caesar. Mm. I love On the Waterfront. What a classic, fantastic movie. I mean, I could say The Godfather because of course I could say The Godfather, but I'm just gonna, I'll say Superman. Just <laughs> go the first Superman movie is You Will Believe a Man Can Fly. It is fantastic, yeah. and a big part <laughs> of that is Marlon Brando giving that movie heft. It is. So hopefully all of you already seen Marlon Brando films. But if you haven't, th- these are three good places to start. Sydney Battle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Guys, you can follow Sydney uh, at Sydney Battle on Twitter, at Sid Battle on Instagram. And I promise you, you can just go and watch an hour of her videos because I have done it. Uh, <laughs> so please go go check them out. Guys, thank you for listening. If you enjoy this, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps out so much. We also have a Patreon down in the show notes. It helps us keep the show going if you can uh, become our patrons. And uh, we'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us. When? I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.